ladies and gentlemen, and non-binary friends, welcome to episode two of the incredible Playable Podcast. I am your host, Alistair Aitchison, and today we shall be talking about chessboards. Hello, all my lovely and delightful friends. Thank you for coming and listening to the show. It is a pleasure to have you here. As the handsome announcer just said, today I'm going to be talking about chessboards. I'm going to be talking about chessboards in playful art. Conceptual artist Yoko Ono and one of her pieces that she created using a chessboard. And a piece of interactive art I created myself using a chessboard. But before we get to that, there is a little game for you to all play along at home, and guess what it involves? A chessboard. If you have a chessboard in the vicinity, grab it and set it up now. If you don't have a chess set, use any other board game as long as it supports two players, um, and you can designate one player as good and one player as evil. If you're driving, please don't set up a chess set and instead just imagine a chess set in your mind's eye. Actually, that's probably a bad idea. Keep your mind's eye on the road where it belongs. The game for today's show is a normal game of chess, normal chess rules, except for when I say something interesting, something exciting, maybe something that inspires you, something you feel positive about. If you feel yourself having that positive reaction, I want you to move a white piece. If I say something that is boring or annoying or I make the same point again, anything that makes you feel a kind of negative response, I want you to move a black piece. Now both sides are playing to win. You, my friend, are just a neutral party moving these pieces to see what happens. So good luck and I'll be checking in as the show goes on to see how your different pieces are doing. There's an artist called Takako Saito. She's Japanese and she was active in the 60s and 70s as part of the Fluxus movement. And she made this piece called Smell Chess. Now, Smell Chess is a chessboard set up with these kind of little glass jars. And you can't tell what the different chess pieces are by looking at them. You have to open a jar and smell it to be able to identify it. Now, at the start of the game, they're all laid out in chess formation. So, you know, you can tell, you open one up and you go, okay, that smell from a jar on the front row, that is a pawn. But as the game goes on, and as the pieces get moved around and mixed around, you're not going to be able to tell which piece is which visually. So you're going to have to keep on opening the jars to smell the smell and try and remember which pieces are where on the board. Now, what I love about this from a gameplay perspective, like for as a game designer, is that it creates this situation where you can't possibly know the entire state of the board. Like, you can't figure that out at a glance. There's all of these extra steps involved in figuring out the state of the board that you just kind of get by instinct if you can tell what the pieces are visually. 
So you have to go through these steps of opening the jar, smelling them, relying on memory for some of them, because, you know, once you've smelt all of the pieces, you're going to forget what the earlier ones were. So you have to just use your kind of context memory to go, okay, that one, I remember that one's a pawn. But you're not going to see, you're not going to be able to look at a board at a glance and see, okay, I've got, these are the threats, and these are the places I can't move anything into, and these are my, maybe I've got three options, and I can kind of see them, because you can kind of, with a normal chessboard, you can instinctively read what your possible moves are, just by looking at the pieces. But you don't have that because every time you try to figure out a different option, you have to try and remember where all the pieces are and you have to recalculate your strategies. It taps into the difference between a computer and a human being. Regardless of whether these were smells or whether these were, you know, carved wooden pieces, a computer would be able to keep a perfect record of the state of the board. But you're not a computer, you're a human. So in order to play this game well, you need to master that human ability to memorize what's on the board to such a degree that you don't need to think about it. And that is a skill where being able to do that perfectly is basically entirely out of reach. There's always an element of imperfection in every single move that you take. You cannot be expected to take a perfect move, and I find that fascinating. When I was making my game uh, Codex Bash, which is an installation kind of which involves running around hitting buttons, and you're hitting the buttons in order to solve these puzzles, these kind of coded sequences, The best puzzles in the game were the ones where there is so much information that a player can't be expected to keep all the information, keep all the connections and mappings in memory and run around the room pressing all the buttons in the right order and be expected to keep all of that stuff in memory. What happens because the players can't keep track of what's going on is that they invite their friends to help them out. And then the friends find ways of splitting this task up between them. Maybe one player does all the thinking and another player does all the running. Or maybe each player takes two colours. So there's a red button, yellow button, green button, blue button. And maybe I go, okay, I'll take the green button and the blue button. And if any information relates to red or yellow, I just disregard it. But all of these strategies that you're devising there with the player that you've invited to join you, like they have not been prompted by the game. They are something that you have come up with independently as a way to solve the problem that the game has given you. But the game hasn't told you to do that, so you get to own that solution. And I love these kind of things. I love these real kind of hand-wavy game elements that are reliant on the fact that there is some level of imperfection to our reality as human beings, to the way that we can interact. There is, on some level, we are not as good at this activity that a computer would be but we can try our best and we can try and persevere and we can try and work around the fact that we are not computers. 
Now, as well as smell chess, Takako Saito made a game called uh, Spice Chess, which is a chessboard where it's spices that you can smell or taste in order to figure out which piece is which. A liquor chess, where you have to taste these different, like, whiskies and brandies and things in order to figure out which piece is which. And of course, as you're playing, you are going to get progressively inebriated. A weight chess, where all the pieces look identical, but you can figure them out, like, which ones are which, by picking them up and comparing weight against weight to sort of identify, oh, this one's heavier than that one, and lighter than that one, this one must be a bishop. And sound chess, where all the pieces are identical-looking boxes, and you have to pick them up and shake them and see what they sound like in order to identify them. Um, out of those, I think weight chess is particularly interesting because I think it's hard to... Like, weight is one of these things that you can't really judge absolutely. You know, you can't pick something up and go, mm, that's 100, 100 grams. But you can pick two things up and go, okay, this one is heavier than that one. So there's this extra level of hand waviness there where you can't get an exact fix on what piece is what, and I think that's really special. So I read about these chessboards, these strange chessboards, in a book by Mary Flanagan called Critical Play, and there was this one piece in the same, it was in the same chapter, and it just really stood out to me and it really stuck with me. And it's been on my mind basically for the past year. That's when I read this book was about a year ago. It's called All White Chess Set. And it is a piece by Yoko Ono. So All White Chess Set is, it's a chess set where all the pieces are white. And all the squares are white. So when you're playing a game of chess on the all-white chess set, you are eventually going to reach a point where you can't remember whose pieces are whose. You're reliant on memory to remember, oh, is that my knight or is that your knight? And eventually you're going to reach a point where neither player, where neither player knows. And when you get to that point, what do you decide? You know, does it, is a player going to lose if they move one of your pieces by accident? And if so, how do you police that rule if neither of you can kind of clearly agree on whose pieces belong to whom? Do you just end up allowing both players to move all the pieces and do you decide in the moment if a move is okay? If neither player can track the state of the board, do you declare it a stalemate? All of these situations are things that the players are going to have to figure out in the moment, as they come up, and they're going to have to negotiate them between each other. At some point during this game of chess, you're going to have to look each other in the eye and start talking to each other. And then it's up to the players themselves how they decide to resolve this situation, you know, and they get to own the solution that they come up with. And that interpretation of how to play this game entirely belongs to them, and it is unique to them as well. I think this piece is really special. And what I've been trying to figure out is basically, like, what is it that really sticks with me about this piece? 
Like, I can see obvious things. Like, obviously, there is the thing of, you know, there being some face-to-face -face negotiation in there. There is an element of wooliness in it. And there is that thing of the, you know, whenever something comes up out of face-to-face -face interaction and discussion, the solution is unique to the players. And I always think that is a special thing to have in a game. But there's something more. There is something more going on here. One of the special things, I think, is that you don't actually have to play the all-white chess set in order to figure out that it's going to end in the way that I just described. You can look at this board, or just imagine it in your head, and you can kind of just... You can play through some moves in your head and then imagine different game states it could get into and picture it in your head and... Like, imagine you walk up to this piece in a museum and you see the chessboard set up, you could just look at that chessboard and immediately your mind is going through the steps of moving different pieces and asking, what if? Over the process of looking at it, it might even happen just really quickly. You know, it might be an instant gut feel thing. You will play through all the steps, playing a loosely defined imaginary game of the all-white chess set, reaching a point where you can't play anymore, and figuring out, oh, well, what would I do about that? I think a lot of people would have that experience just from looking at it, and then they get to think about what their preferred solution would be, you know, how they would resolve it if it falls apart. And this makes me think of an article that Holly Grammatio wrote about a year ago, and I'll link to it in the show notes. It's called How Not to Play. So this article is a list of seven suggestions for how to interact with games without even playing them. I'm going to read them out to you now. She lists, enact the moves of a game without playing it. Play the game without enacting the moves. You know, an example of this she gives is watching GIFs of people playing Tetris and noticing that it's impossible to watch without hurriedly deciding where you'd put each piece. Uh, making fan art of the game? Vaguely hearing about a game? Hearing about a game in a whole lot of detail? Trying to play a game and then give up? and playing a different game instead. And it's in point six and seven here, the trying to play a game and then giving up, and playing a different game instead, that she, that she brings up chess. She says, sit down by a giant chess set and watch people come up and play. Most of the time you'll find that they don't play, but rather try to remember how to play. Maybe they'll look up chessboard layouts on their phones, Maybe they'll guess and get the bishops wrong. Maybe they'll talk about how all the different pieces move. Then ten minutes later, they'll move on and do something else. What she's acknowledging there is very simple to what's going on when people see the all-white chess set in a gallery and they play it through in their heads. Just because they're not physically touching the pieces does not mean that they're not interacting with it. This how-to-play piece really resonated with me because I'm someone who finds themselves with a lot of games that they want to play and a lot of games that sound fascinating and I really want to interact with, but 
not enough time to actually engage with them. I spend a lot of time watching speedruns and being fascinated by them, but not trying to speedrun games myself. I spend time watching Let's Players, playing games that I'll never play, and going, oh, that looks really interesting, and I'd love to play that, but this is a 40-hour experience. I don't have 40 hours. I can watch a live stream while I'm brushing my teeth. And, you know, reading articles on critical distance and going, oh, God, that sounds fascinating. That's a really interesting point. I would love to experience that firsthand, but I don't have time. I can, I can read an article from critical distance when I'm sat on a bus or a train. And so at the time that I read Holly's piece, this gave me a really kind of reassuring feeling. It is perfectly fine to experience a game by watching a Let's Player play it, or experience speedrunning by hearing speedrunners commentate over their runs. You can read an article about a game that presents some interesting ideas, and you can absorb all of those interesting ideas and the ways that the game uses play as, a, as an exciting way to explore them without playing yourself, because you can read someone else's second-hand account of it. And these are all valid. So the experience of someone standing next to the all-white chess set in an art gallery and just looking at it, and not sitting down and moving the pieces around, is fine. That is a valid way to play with the all-white chess set. And by just standing and looking at it, you are getting a meaningful experience out of it, because you can instinctively play this game through in your head. And I don't think that the fact that it is in a gallery, in a space where you're not expected to touch the artwork, where you're not expected to be allowed to touch the artwork, I don't think that makes the piece any less playful. It changes the character of the playfulness. It creates a situation where you think about, if I did sit down and play this, I would be crossing over some kind of threshold. I would be stepping over some kind of boundary. And it also creates a situation where it's less likely that something expected happens. Um, and personally, as a creator, I love the unexpected. I love you know, putting an artwork into a situation or a game into an exhibition and seeing what happens and enjoying the fact that it is totally different to what I predicted. But I don't think that putting the all-white chess set in a place where play is allowed would destroy the artwork. It would just change it, and similarly, putting it in a place where play isn't allowed wouldn't destroy the artwork, it would just change it. It would change the attitude that you approach it with. So I have a bit of a prior track record with using chess as an artistic medium. Well before reading this uh, book, uh, Mary Flanagan's Critical Play, and finding out about Yoko Ono's chess sets and Takako Saito's chess sets, I'd already made an interactive piece using chess pieces. It was called Pawns, and I made it in the autumn of 2019. It was this big chess board with, it was sort of 44 squares by 44 squares. And on each side, there were 87 pawns and one king. 
87 white pawns and one white king, 87 black pawns and one black king. And apart from that, the rules were identical to that of chess. And what I kind of wanted to create here was this situation where, like, to get to a point where someone could actually win a game of this is going to take forever. To get to the point where two pawns even come into contact with each other is going to take forever. Because you have to take all of these tiny steps, one at a time, alternating from player to player, moving one pawn one step forward. Over and over again. And I think that anybody who sees this giant chessboard is going to instinctively play through it a little, and they're going to imagine what's going to happen, and they're going to go, that'll take forever. And I also hope that it's pretty obvious, because it seems pretty obvious to me, that it's going to end in a stalemate. I wanted it to be a playful object that is designed to be deliberately and oppressively tedious. What I felt at the time that I made it, and to be honest I continue to feel today, is a sense of despair around climate change. I feel that irreversible climate change has become an inevitability. Meanwhile, there is very little that we as individuals can do to change that. The problem is just too large for us. The fate of the climate is in the hands of people in positions of political power. And all too often, I feel like these people are acting in bad faith. What this added up to was a feeling of futility, a feeling of pointlessness, and what I know that I was trying to do was trying to capture that, you know, trying to bottle that. You know, the, the language that I am used to speaking is games, so how can I make a system of games, a system of play that conveys the sense that I am feeling right now? where every small action that is in my power to perform is utterly meaningless, having a play object that is made in bad faith. You can look at that and you can't deny that this chessboard is a game board, it is a play board, but it is not designed in the spirit of being fun. So there is this kind of obvious connection between this piece of work that I created and that, you know, beyond it's a chessboard, there is this question of how do you interact with this object once you set it up in a gallery space? And I was fortunate enough to be invited to show this piece at the Now Play This exhibition in Somerset House. Now, unfortunately, uh, the Now Play This exhibition was scheduled for April last year, and had to be closed because of Covid. But we did get to have an interesting discussion when we were planning the event, and talking about how they might want to exhibit it. Unlike a traditional gallery space, Now Play This is, is an environment where visitors are encouraged to touch the art. So what would happen to this chessboard with 174 pawns and two kings when you set it up in an environment where adults and children are and families are encouraged to touch it and play with it? Do we ask people to take one move each and see how the game evolves over the course of the weekend? 
Well, I kind of like this idea that we could ask players to make one move each, knowing full well that not everybody is going to obey that rule. And some of them are going to do it because they didn't even see that the, there was a rule before they touched the piece. And some of it are going to see that there's a rule and they're going to knowingly break those rules and they're going to be mischievous. You know, this is a piece where if you obey the rules, it's just not fun. But if you break the rules, could you turn it into something fun? You've got this big, wide-open, creative challenge. How do you take this, this tedious nothing of an experience and turn it into something enjoyable, something fun, something exciting? Are there going to be people who sit down and try to reset the game to its starting state and then they, they try to play it in good faith and like how long is it going to be before these players just give up because it's boring or they start breaking the rules because it's more fun to play that way? How many of the pieces are just going to get picked up and stolen? And when that happens, do we replace them or do we just let this art piece decay and just experience what happens, let it be, let this piece of art rot. Ladies and gentlemen and non-binary friends, the time has come for your scheduled playable intermission. How are we all getting on with our chessboards? Who's winning? Who's losing? How far the game through the game are you? Have we barely made any moves or has it been absolute carnage as one team has just been destroying the other team? I'm going to make the suggestion we add a new rule now. So see if you can find a coin or a button or a bottle cap near you, anything, or anything small enough to fit onto the chessboard. And I want you to choose a random empty square and I want you to put that object, let's call it a coin for the time being, put that coin into that square. We're going to come up with a rule for that coin. What does that coin do? Is it on one of the teams? Is it, is it a kind of neutral party? Does it have the power to destroy pieces? Does it have the power to bring pieces back to life? When does it move? Does it move when the white team moves? When the black team moves? Does it move randomly when you feel like moving it? when you decide it, this would be an interesting place to put it. Whatever comes into your mind right now as an action that 2P coin could do. If you've not thought of anything, I'm just going to throw this in now for you. If any piece is next to the 2P coin ever, that piece will be removed from the board. Let's see how the game moves on with this strange new development in chess world as we return to the discussion of Yoko Ono's chessboard. So, the book where I read about Yoko Ono's all-white chess set, um, a book called Critical Play by Mary Flanagan, um, in this book she cites some other pieces that use chess in interesting ways. Uh, so one of them is by an artist called Gabriel Orozco, I hope I'm uh, pronouncing that right, from 1995, and it's called Horses Running Endlessly. It's a chessboard where instead of two colours, there's four colours. And all the pieces on the board are knights. 
and they are in the four colours that match the colour of the squares. And they start out in this kind of grid formation, and Mary Flanagan describes it as follows. In a typical chessboard, the knight can, in theory, occupy all squares in sequence without repeating a position. There is something simultaneously happening among the knights on the board, as though all of the knights should be moving not in turn, but in formation. The result is a sense of infinite possibility. It is easy to imagine that a player or participant with this work would be free to modify the order of pieces as they wish. Like kinetic sculpture or a mobile, Orozco's horses could be activated. I really like this as an example of a piece of art using chess where just looking at it implies movement, where you can just look at it and instinctively imagine the way that it's going to be played. And I wonder if that's because of the knight as a piece in a chess set, where all the other pieces move in straight lines, forwards or backwards, left, right, diagonal. The knight, not only does it move in a kind of L shape or a curve, but it can jump over other pieces. So it has this movement, this feeling of kind of cogs in a machine. And then if you move one out of place, it will be out of sequence with the others, and you'll naturally want to move all the others so that the sequence is all symmetrical again. With Tetris, you have this sense that that the board is always messy, and you want to clean it up. And if you move a knight on horses running endlessly, you are going to mess up the neat pattern, and you are going to want to move all of the other knights so that it is no longer messy. But the system is complex and dynamic, so the set of moves that you're going to need to do are going to be complex. It's something to think about. And maybe it's going to create this kind of swirling pattern. I don't know. The knight as a piece lends itself to thinking of this static object, the game board, as being a machine in motion. Speaking about Yoko Ono's all-white chess set, Mary Flanagan says it emphasises the ways in which serious issues might be tackled through games, and how multiple participants in games have equal opportunities and face equal stakes. Reskinning or painting all of the pieces white eliminates the element of competition from the traditional form of the game. She goes on to talk about how the all-white colours of the pieces match the colour of pacifism. The colour white has pacifist connotations. Yoko Ono is famously political and famously a pacifist. You know, white is the colour of the dove of peace. White is the colour of, you know, the flag you wave when you surrender. And if both sides wave the white flag of surrender, then neither side has dominance over the other, so they have both agreed to find peace. You know, perhaps it is purely due to the white colour of the pieces, but maybe it's more so to who Yoko Ono is as a vocal pacifist, that there is this implied political nature to the piece. 
And when I was doing my research for this episode, and I was reading up on the all-white chess set, I found this blog article that the Museum of Modern Art in New York wrote up. Now, in 2015, they set up a bunch of all-white chess sets in their sculpture garden as part of a Yoko Ono retrospective. I've been talking about the all-white chess set appearing in a gallery, and there's this provocation to, to play in a space where you're not supposed to touch the art. But here we had the Museum of Modern Art. Not only were they, they took it outside of the walls of the gallery, so they played it in the garden, and they actively invited people to play. And I think this has an effect on how people feel about stepping up and having a go. So in this blog article, they quote two of the facilitators, and I'll put a discussion, uh, I'll put a link to this in the, in the show notes so you can have a look. But what struck me is that in these quotes, the thing that comes up is that the players' experiences with the piece were explicitly political. Very early on in the first quotation, the facilitator said, we discussed the political connotations of the dissolution of the distinction between sides. And later, we were negotiating peace on Ono's white chess set. A spectator joined our conversation about Yoko Ono's intentions, and the conversation quickly opened up with each visitor contextualising their political positions and understandings of the work according to their own respective backgrounds. Politics is central to this experience. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a good thing. I think it is important that art be political. I think it is important that we make art pieces that have something to say, that can inspire some kind of meaningful change. But what I do find is quite interesting is this kind of political angle feels like it's being uh, sort of centred as the main point of the work. You know, that people that people come up to this all-white chess set and the implication is that they are supposed to read it as a political statement. It's not that the primary your primary experience with it should be a sensory one. It's not that your main experience with it should be a kind of a ludic one about the sensation of being in a game experience where you are confused, which arguably is the thing that drew me to it. You know, when I was reading about this, you know, what made me want to uh, talk about it in this podcast was imagining the ludic experience of being in the middle of the game and getting confused and having to figure out how you resolve that, purely as a kind of sensory experience. But I also think about this in comparison to the game of pawns, and how we were expecting pawns to be experienced at Now Play This in Somerset House. When people go into the Museum of Modern Art, they expect to see something political, whereas when people go to Now Play This, they accept expect to see something playful. They expect to see games. They expect to see toys. They would see this big chessboard with all the pawns on it, and they would go, this is a toy to be played with. And so I think there's this interesting question which comes up. 
you know? You put the all-white chess set in the Museum of Modern Art and people instinctively read it as political. You put pawns into Now Play This and people instinctively read it as a toy. If you put the all-white chess set into Now Play This, would they read that piece as political or would they read that piece as a toy? I wonder if people engage with the all-white chess set in a space where you haven't told them that there is a political connotation, where they don't know who Yoko Ono is, for example, and they play with it, and they reach this stalemate point, is their experience going to contain a political discussion? Is it, on a subconscious level, going to conjure up ideas of political discussion? Or really, is their entire experience going to be sensory? Is it entirely going to be playful, ludic? And maybe at some point in their future lives, they will make a mental leap between their experience that they had with the all-white chess set and some political question that they're thinking about. But that putting these two ideas together of pacifism and a chess set is that going to be something that they are going to have to, a connection that they're going to have to make entirely on their own? And is the fact that that would be a mental leap significant? Or is every piece made in the full knowledge that how it is interpreted is going to be dependent on where it is exhibited, on how it is framed? This feels like an appropriate time to mention that I don't actually like chess. I don't have any reverence for chess as a beautiful game. Um, I've not played chess in a long, long time. I know I, I did try to play it uh, when I was around, I want to say, eight or nine. Uh, my brother got really into it. He's older than me. He spent a lot more time reading about chess. And I do remember playing against him and getting beaten every time. I also remember trying to play chess with friends at around 17, 18, and it would always be a game of don't mess up. The games would go on and on and on, and eventually one player would mess up, and they would be the player who lost. And it didn't have this exciting climax to it. It didn't have this sense that you won by being smart. It had this sense that you, that you failed by being stupid. As a game designer, I don't like this, this sense that there is a barrier of entry so high that to get to the point with this game where it feels like you're making smart decisions, you have to overcome this skill threshold. What I'm not saying is that chess is a bad game. Because by that strange logic, Street Fighter would be a bad game. And I love Street Fighter. Street Fighter, I find Street Fighter really, really fun. But what I am saying is that personally, as an artist, I have no reverence for it. You compare that to, say, Marcel Duchamp, uh, the famous surrealist artist, who apparently stopped making art for about 10 years to play chess, and claimed that playing chess for 10 years was a piece of art. That chess itself was an art form. And that's a sentiment that doesn't resonate with me. I, I, like on an intellectual level, I can accept that chess could be seen as a form of art. But to me, I don't feel like chess is a form of art. To me, 
It's just a board game. But what I love about chess from a creative standpoint is that it comes kind of filled with these connotations. Its symbols are universally recognised. You know, it is common for people to recognise the pieces and know what they're called and how they move. You know, even if they don't know it in its entirety, they kind of know enough. And they know that the themes are military and monarchy. And also, and I think this is the important one that sort of rings true for me, chess is a smart game for smart people. And I think that was definitely at the back of my mind when I was trying to create a piece that conjured a sense of oppressive tedium, where adherence to the rules is supposed to make you feel small. I chose a game that to me carries a connotation of being judgmental and mean. There's a symbolism that comes up in Mary Flanagan's discussion of the all-white chess set, which is looking at chess, the typical chessboard with black and white pieces, there is this very clear reflection of an idea of us and them. And she cites sort of thinkers that have used this kind of, you know, the us and them mentality of the chessboard as symbolic of fascism. Um, that fascism will take on the ideas of us and them and kind of holy, holy struggle as, as a justification. And so by taking away this concept of us and them, by painting all the pieces the same colour, Yoko Ono is proposing an idea where this is not a reality. It functions as a statement that the distinction between us and them is arbitrary and made by an outside force, and it falls apart under the slightest scrutiny. There's a piece by an artist called Ruth Catlow called Rethinking War Games, and it's cited in the book as the two opposing royal forces in black and white, who are the kings and queens and knights and bishops and rooks, they are opposed by a neutral force of pawns played by a third party, and the pawns must block the two royal teams by preventing them from fighting, forming a kind of human barricade, effectively acting as non-violent protesters. We interrupt your listening for a playable interlude. How are we doing with our chessboards, by the way? Who's winning? Has the game already been won? And if so, what becomes of the board state now that the game has been won? Are you still playing the game? Have you given up? Have you got bored? How faithfully are you following the rules? And by that I mean how faithfully are you following the rules of chess, or how faithfully are you following the rules that I set out at the beginning of the podcast? Are you being generous with the number of moves you're giving the white team? Or maybe you're being very generous with the number of moves you're giving the black team. How do you gauge the difference between me making a good point that makes you feel good vibes and me making a bad point or a non-point that makes you want to move one of the black pieces?
So coming back to showing the many, many pawns at Now Play This in Somerset House. Now Play This decided that instead of doing a live exhibition in the museum, which was no longer possible, that they would do an online exhibition. And they invited me to do a live stream of the game on Twitch. Now, I'd already run one of these on my own Twitch channel to see what would happen. And the way it worked is that I labelled the squares of the board. I kind of added an outer border to the chessboard with coordinates. So the audience could type in coordinates like A32 to A33 if they wanted to move the piece from square A32 into square A33. And I could find that pawn and make that move and then wait for the next command. This game lasted about a total of four hours. And what was really cool about it was that the audience just kind of started naturally coming up with all of these stories. Like it began with these with these little comments like F2 steps forward to help its friend. And as the hours went on, these pieces, these little pawns on the board started to develop names and personalities. You know, I was hosting the thing, I was talking to the camera as I took all of these moves, but ultimately, I was just responding to what the audience was saying. I wasn't, as far as I remember, I wasn't adding to this story. I was just kind of repeating it back to the camera so that they could hear and going, this is fun, I like where this is going, you know? Towards the end, I think it was around the three-hour mark, there was this thing about one pawn who had left the front rank moving forwards, but not to fight the war, but to go and buy eggs. And everybody in the chat was teaming together to move this one pawn all the way over to the other side of the board. Because they didn't know what happened if a pawn got to the other side of the board. Now, my original idea is that a pawn who reaches the other side of the board becomes a pawn. And that's it. You know, it's totally anticlimactic. But given the amount of effort that they put into this, it just felt mean to do that to them. And so my idea was, because this pawn had gone to buy eggs, that when this pawn reaches the other side of the board, the pawn should become an egg. And then there was this kind of negotiation about how the egg is supposed to move. And we kind of negotiated these rules about rolling an egg at a target chosen by the audience. And then after that, the egg swaps onto the other team. And and there was a point at which a second egg got added to the board. And eventually I kind of tasted the air that this game had reached this kind of climax point. There was this amount of silliness going on and it kind of wanted to reach a climactic end. I think it was the fact that they didn't feel like there was much more for the audience to achieve. At that point, it was once the first egg showed signs of cracking, we executed the two kings by dropping eggs on them and then called it a draw. So that was the original stream of the Pawns game on Twitch. 
And then in April, I did a second live stream for Now Play This. And the way that I did it this time was have the audience play against each other. And I divided them up, so depending on the letter of the alphabet your name starts with, like, that determines what team you're on. But I was no longer a player in this. You know, I was no longer an opponent. It was just team versus team. And another thing that I added into this mix is that anything the audience typed into chat, I would act out, whether or not it was a legal chess move. The audiences, they started by just taking normal legal chess moves. And some of the players from the first stream came on for this second one, and they already had a sense of in their head that they wanted to make it into a story. And they were already kind of turning the gears in that and giving some of the pawns names and, you know, making little story starters. And then one player did a move that was incorrect. They moved a piece the wrong number of spaces, and I did it on screen. And there was this moment of discussion. There was like, wait, he just, he just moved a piece. And people started to try out other things that they could do, and they would take even more kind of cheaty moves. And I kind of basically wasn't policing it. I was just doing what people were saying. And then people started to try typing in things that weren't even chess moves. Like a team of pawns forms a protective barrier around this specific pawn in a square. And this set of pawns forms a union and refuses to play the game. And then there was like a, a dragon got added to the board and some of the pawns fell in love and some of the pawns went to prison and there was a cuddly toy egg that got added to the board and then someone asked me to rip up part of the board and it was made of these Ikea tables so I just kind of it was like these four quarters each quarter was an Ikea table so I just like pulled it or gaffer tape to the floor and I pulled the coffee table up and just put it away off camera and there was this big gap that got replaced with the board game Carcassonne and then the meeples from Carcassonne got joined to the board and they became a kind of third faction fighting between the white pawns and the black pawns and then by the end of it like, the white pawns all got put into a glass of water, and the final command was, the host drinks the glass of water with all the pawns in it, which I did. I didn't swallow the pawns, but I did swallow the water, and that was the end of the game. That I counted as a checkmate. But there were 20 minutes left to go on the stream, and I wanted to give them the full two hours that I promised them. So I decided to ask the audience what the epilogue should be to this story. The war is over, the smoke is cleared, we had pawns and cuddly toys and bits of cut up paper all over the place. And now the next generation has been left to rebuild this chessboard society. What do they do? And so this missing section of the board got replaced and, and became heaven. And the remaining pawns learned the folly of their warlike ways, and they worked together to climb up to heaven and meet God, who was the cuddly toy egg. And the meeples from Carcassonne, they inherited the earth that had been left behind by the pawns who ascended to heaven. And so they were let, like the next, the next species inhabiting this earth. 
and they began to grow plants on it. And it was really quite beautiful. All of this had been improvised. All of this had come up with the audience. The only thing that I was doing as host was facilitating it, making the moves happen, saying what I'm doing to camera so everyone can follow, and yes, anding. If someone suggests something that I can't quite figure out how to enact, then it's up to me to kind of interpret it in a way that I can actually perform. But that was it. You know, this entire magical journey we went on where we where the pawns, you know, renounced war and went up to heaven to meet the egg god. Like, that came entirely spontaneously from this collective storytelling experience. So I'm looking back at all of this, and I'm thinking, what did I learn from making this giant chessboard? You know, what did I even create? I started out with this intention to create something with this very clear intended mindset, this very clear intended experience of tedium, of toil, of pointlessness, of the rule maker being oppressive. The rule maker, this invisible figure, was supposed to be this kind of malicious figure. And I put this in front of a real live audience and they found something totally new in it. They broke the rules in a way that I had never expected. This is a play object deliberately designed not to be playful, and the audience found play in it. They found play in spite of it. Or maybe it was the context of having this guy, you know, this performer, me, running around under, you know, under the point of view of this camera like some kind of lab experiment. I don't know. But I certainly feel that there is more meat, more meaning, you know, there's something that touches the heart more strongly in the piece once it had been reclaimed by this audience, once it had been turned into this play object. There is more to that than there was in that sombre meditative experience that I originally intended to create. And I don't mean to say that there isn't a place for the sombre and the serious. I don't think playful is better than serious. But I do think that the audience just brought something more meaningful into the room. That the vision that they had created was not fixed and rigid like mine was. But it was free and open and optimistic. And it was based on listening and communication and understanding. I expected that people would naturally be drawn to upending this piece, but I never expected that the way that they would upend it would be by way of collective storytelling. And I think back to Yoko Ono's All White Chessboard. We both started from similar positions. We both saw chessboards, and we saw political situations that we were unhappy with, and we said, this object is a way to say something about it. Whereas mine, I feel, in its inert state, it didn't really communicate anything. And it only began to communicate something once it was, once it was played with, once it was upended, once it was destroyed, once the creator's original intent was rejected. 
Whereas her piece was the opposite. I think her original intent was accepted, was valued. And, you know, when it's placed in a gallery, people are putting it in a context where a political reading is the main thing that you're supposed to get out of it. And I am making a big assumption when I say that Yoko Ono wanted this piece to be read primarily as a political statement. But that is, that I acknowledge, is the assumption I make about what she's trying to do as an artist. Which could be part of the same thing of this is what is being projected when people talk about the work. It could be that Yoko Ono, you know, wanted this to be a playful piece like mine and she put it into galleries and even though it was widely accepted, it was accepted with an intent that she had not come up with herself. I don't know. Because I don't know her. I've never met Yoko Ono. What would Yoko Ono's all-white chess set conjure up if it was played collectively? What would happen if we put the all-white chess set on a Twitch stream? And how would that be different to say if we put it on a stage? Or if I played it in my living room with my brother? Is the fact that the true nature of my chessboard emerged when a collective of participants gathered around it? Or is the clarity of the message behind a piece of work like Yoko Ono's chess set, uh, like Rethinking War Games, is that what's really important? Because in the face of war, in the face of fascism, in the face of climate change and the inevitable climate catastrophe that we're going to find ourselves in, that it's important to be able to point at something specific and say, there's your problem. That it's important to be able to use a chessboard as, as a model of the way things could be better. To be able to point at the normal, unedited chessboard as evidence of how our existing models and our existing mindsets about the world fail us. But the bit that I think I really get from Yoko Ono's piece that I think is so important and so special and which I haven't captured in my own work is this point, this natural point that occurs in the middle of the game. And you either sit down with it and play it and reach that point yourself or you imagine yourself playing and you imagine yourself reaching this point. It's this natural point in the natural middle of the game where the players have to ask, so what now? This could be the end of the player's experience with the piece. That they figure out, oh, they can't figure out whose pieces are whose anymore, so they decide to stop playing. And the game ends in the middle. It doesn't end with a climax. It ends with a question. And when you do choose to walk away from the game, which will be the inevitable ending of it, you will go away wondering what could have happened if you stuck with it and played it a little bit longer. And isn't that such a meaningful and important thing for a piece of art for a piece of game, for a piece of play to say, to ask the question. So what now?
ladies and gentlemen, and non-binary friends. This has been the Incredible Playable Podcast, Episode 2. Who won in your game of chess? The white side or the black side? And was justice served? Did the winner of this game of chess that you had, did it reflect the quality of the experience that you had? Did you make it right through to the end of a game of chess? Or did you just give up? That's fine. I'm not judging. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for listening. I hope you've had a fantastic time listening and enjoy the rest of your day or your evening. My name is Alistair Aitchison. I am the host and creator of The Incredible Playable Podcast and host and creator of The Incredible Playable Show, my interactive stage show, which you can find out a bit more about by going to playable.show online. Thank you very much. Have yourselves a wonderful day. Bye-bye.